Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. Taiwan is like other societies which are now economically dependent on the Chinese mainland, coping with the fact that China is so economically powerful. And you have many of the sort of anxieties about what do we do about the fact that we used to be on top, and now these people that we used to be ahead of are sort of ahead of us. What I observed is that increasingly younger Taiwanese people they have grown up to be a lot more comfortable with their identity as Taiwanese, and yet accepting the fact that they are not a separate state themselves. Living with the fact that there is this big China there, that's where the opportunities are. In this episode, evolving political identity in Taiwan. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialist at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news headlines in a region that's rapidly changing the world. Taiwan is a small, mostly mountainous island under 200 kilometers from the eastern coast of mainland China, now home to 24 million people. China has always maintained that Taiwan is and will remain forever an inalienable part of China, and that political unification with the mainland is a foregone conclusion. In Taiwan itself, questions about whether it is or should be part of a single China remain, to say the least, politically controversial. But while the great majority of people in Taiwan today have ancestry that can be traced to the Chinese mainland and speak one or more of its languages, how do they actually identify themselves and their society? To what extent do they actually feel Chinese? And in the multi-layered history and social makeup of Taiwan, have they in fact forged a uniquely Taiwanese identity, as Singaporeans of Chinese descent have forged a uniquely Singaporean identity? To examine notions of both national and ethnic identity on the island, and what they imply for relations with mainland China, with us on Ear to Asia this time, Asia Pacific historian Dr. Louis Mayo. And political scientist Dr. Saukiet Tok, both of Asia Institute. Louis Saukiet, welcome. Hello, Peter. Hi, Peter. Now it's obvious, Louis, that we're going to be drilling down to this idea of identity, but it's pretty hard to talk about identity today without going back a fair bit, I think. So, can we go back, perhaps, to the time before any colonizers even arrived on the island of Taiwan? There was an indigenous population. Okay, so, the indigenous people of Taiwan are speakers of Austronesian languages. Those languages actually originate from Taiwan, and the Austronesian family is a very widely spread family. It includes Maori, Indonesian, Hawaiian, the Malagasy language of Madagascar, and that population was, as far as we can tell, the almost exclusive possessors of the island of Taiwan prior to the 17th century.、Uh, even though Taiwan is very close to mainland China. Evidence of any kind of permanent settlement from China prior to the 1600s is quite limited. In the 1620s, the Dutch, who were trying to trade with the then Ming Dynasty government in China, established an outpost there, and that precipitated,、um, along with some Spanish colonisation in the north of Taiwan, the transformation of that 
Austronesian indigenous space into basically a, a Chinese settler environment with the majority of the settlers between the 17th and the 19th centuries coming from Fujian province, the province where Sokit's ancestors come from and many Southeast yes, Asians indeed. do, um, with the majority dialect groups being uh, the language that in English we refer to as Hokkien. Oh, that's what it's called in Singapore, with a significant minority, uh, currently around uh, 10% of the Taiwan population speaking Hakka, which is a Chinese language that can't be understood by speakers of Hokkien unless they have some proper training. Nor Mandarin. Nor Mandarin, yeah. yeah. And they're quite a close-knit group, aren't they? Hakka. Yes, indeed, indeed. And uh, the settlement um, process was an interesting one in that between the Dutch who were expelled by um, forces linked to the declining Ming dynasty um, in the middle of the 17th century and that regime, which is an important one for the ideas associated with unification in the Taiwan Straits because it's seen as emblemising a kind of Chinese patriotism that the long-term destiny of Taiwan is to join with the mainland. That regime was defeated and replaced by the government of the Qing dynasty in the 1680s and then a complex process of colonisation occurred, often without actual government support. And different groups of migrants from different parts of Fujian and Guangdong provinces, Hakka and Hokkien, settled in different areas. And did they just drift across to the island drawn by opportunity? Was that the main okay. reason? Well, I would argue that a lot of it was a combination of entrepreneurial ambition and desperation. We're looking at a stage in which uh, the Chinese economy was expanding in the 18th century in particular, and the need for rice within the mainland market, particularly in Fujian, was very significant. And people ambitious for the expansion of their commercial interests were important colonisers. That said, there were also a lot of people who were essentially poor and desperate who went. So it's a complex analogue to other settlement processes that you can see in New Zealand or in the United States or Canada in terms of being commercially driven and also promoted by people who did not necessarily want to leave their homeland, but on the other hand were also interested in opportunities. So very similar to the processes that unfolded with Chinese communities in Southeast Asia in the same period. And just briefly, Lewis, a snapshot of it geographically, the topography of, of this island, it's got, like so many of these sort of islands, it has a spine of mountains and a fairly flat western plain, hasn't it? Yes, yes. Well, as a New Zealander, I feel a lot at home in yes. Taiwan because it's mountainous and shaky. Um, the eastern part of the island where the indigenous people are now concentrated is extremely mountainous and inaccessible and was not really open to external settlement until the late 19th or even 20th centuries. But on the western side, you have extremely fertile plains. Taiwan is blessed in terms of its environmental circumstances and people live well there in terms of what they can eat. And that's a result of transformation of the environment by the settlement process. So Taiwan has a clear indigenous population with an important linguistic aspect to that as well. We have the colonisers, the Dutch, Spanish. Um, bring us up to date then. Well, the Japanese, of course. Okay, so in terms of Taiwan's place in the modern history of Chinese nationalism, a critical event is the um, Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and 1895, which was seen by Chinese 
patriots as a sign that the Qing dynasty could no longer be trusted with the mission of defending China's culture from external aggression. And the success of Japan there caused a great crisis of self-esteem amongst um, people who had been previously relatively loyal to the Qing dynasty. And it's to be remembered that the Qing dynasty was, of course, ruled by a minority group of uh, non-Han people, um, but that the majority population were people that were classified as Han Chinese, right? And that the defeat of the Qing dynasty by Japan led to Taiwan being ceded to the Japanese. But the experience from 1895 to 1945 under Japanese rule is something that is quite distinctive and quite intriguing from an external point of view, in that, of course, Japan was the first industrial colonial power not to have a European or Euro-American background. And Taiwan was their laboratory, if you like. And they experimented with many different strategies for how they were going to treat this population. But most significantly, this colonization isolated Taiwan from the revolutionary process in China that happened in 1911, which led to the overthrow of the Qing dynasty, the establishment of the two rival parties that were competing for power, the Chinese Nationalist Party and the Chinese Communist Party. These events unfolded when, in a sense, Taiwan was a modernizing colony living under a Japanese police state. And significantly, when Japan attacked China in 1937, um, Japanese policy changed towards a radical encouragement of the Taiwan population to become more Japanese. So between 1937 and 1945, intensive Japanification of the Taiwan population occurred. And this created a very different kind of population temperament, if you like. And of course, this is exactly at the time when anti-Japanese Chinese nationalism is accelerating on the Chinese mainland. And of course, you know, you have in 1937, the destruction of the Chinese nationalist capital in Nanjing, the Nanjing massacre that follows on that, and a great deal of pain and suffering inflicted upon the people of China by Japan at the same time that in the years between 1937 and 1945, you have an acceleration of this Japanification process. So, Kiet, we use this term Han. Is it an umbrella term? We've, we know that there are two dialects spoken in Taiwan at the moment, uh, Hokkien and Hakka, and those people came from fairly close to Taiwan itself. But th- that broad Han label, what does it actually mean? Well, first to correct on that, I don't think there were just two dialects, but there are multiple dialects. Just the two main ones are Hokkien and Hakka. Now, the idea of Han itself is rather intriguing. I think historically, what is Han? Sometimes it's the same question as asking what is Chinese. And uh, it's this idea over time that the Chinese like to see ourselves as uh, part of this heritage that links all the way back to the Huangdi and that Sanghuangdi kind of idea. But that being aside, I think is an all-encompassing ethnic cultural entity. It's not until Han people met up with the uh, the minority people and failed to assimilate them that this idea of Han crystallized over time. And it became one of the uh, rallying flag for uh, Sun Yat-sen and the others at the turn of the uh, 20th century, use it as a way to mobilize the Chinese peoples against the Manchus, okay, who were the minorities at the time. So Han identity is very much like the Taiwanese identity. It became one of those ways of consolidating 
consolidating support and mobilizing the people in fighting for a particular cause, a, a particular community. Um, the term Han was the formal classification that the Qing used for its ex-Ming subjects. It chose to call them Han. It dates back. Central Asian dynasties named their subject Han from essentially the period after the Han dynasty. On Taiwan, the subjects that would have probably not had much consciousness of this larger administrative category, the people who would have thought of themselves primarily as originating in a particular place in Fujian or as Hakka, did, however, distinguish themselves from Fan, which means the Aborigines. So you're always looking at what is the counterpart to this Han context. Now, when the Japanese came in, of course, in addition to the division between Han which was a very incoherent and weak identity in Taiwan at the time of the Japanese conquest, where dialect divisions were much more significant. In addition to being a contrast with the Austronesians, it's a contrast with the Japanese. And, of course, it becomes associated with the cause of anti-Manchu nationalism, which is unfolding on the mainland at the same time. And the Han Taiwanese, Hokkien and Hakka, are complex insiders and outsiders to that Han nationalist revolutionary process in China itself. And of course, the fact that the term Han is not officially translated as Chinese by the Chinese government, right? Because Chinese includes people such as the ethnic Russians in China, northwest China, the Hui, who are Chinese-speaking Muslims, Obviously, Tibetans and Mongolians are all considered to be Chinese people. Now, um, the Chinese nationalist Liang Qichao said in the late period of the Qing dynasty that one of the, the peculiarities of Chinese as people is that they had no name for themselves. We could regard the modern term Zhongguoren, Chinese people, as perhaps even a translation of the English word Chinese. Because that category, in a sense, the people who were then came to think of themselves as Zhongguoren were prior to that Qing subject. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, just to add an anecdote, uh, when my grandparents arrived in Singapore, they wouldn't see themselves as Han, nor do they see themselves as Chinese. They see themselves as Hokkien people arriving from somewhere south of this land called China. It's funny to think about it, but my dad used to rant and say that, you know, when our family first arrived, you know, it was during the Qing time. The grandparents just arrived as kids and they don't know what all this identity thing is. But then it came about after so many years, they started to adopt this idea that they are Chinese after so many decades in Singapore. And this is exactly what Lewis is trying to explain is the whole complexity surrounding this idea of Han around this idea of Chinese is a narrative that is being used again and again to entrench a particular centrifugal force towards a political centrality. And this had some interesting consequences during the Japanese period because, of course, people who were being taught Japanese at school and the members of the sort of upper to middle segment of Taiwan society you know, embraced Japanese education uh, were, of course, adopting a certain Japanese identity and would often find in Japan itself, that they were not Japanese. 
at the same time as encountering Chinese nationalists living in Japan. So this produced a complex kind of three-way identity because a famous novel, The Orphan of Asia, written in the 1940s, deals with exactly this problem, which is that the person, the hero from Taiwan, goes to Japan and suddenly experiences that they're not Japanese. They then go to China and experiences they're not Not Chinese. Chinese. (laughs) And so the question is, well, what's left? And... A Taiwan person is the answer. And one thing that many observers have said is that this identity crisis of these people who had been very loyal to Japan but were also colonised and many of them happy to see the Japanese go in 1945 reached this very, very disturbing point when Japan was defeated in 1945 and the Chinese mainland, the Republic of China for the first time had military and administrative control over the island of Taiwan. And this, of course, was a big break for both sides. Of course, the Chinese state in 1945 was very weak uh, as a result of the war, which it had fought and won, but it was poor and did not have the administrative resources to cope with what was probably the most developed area in Asia outside of Japan and Singapore. You know, the Japanese had industrialised Taiwan for their own purposes and had built up what was effectively, you know, a very, very, what we would think of as probably a middle-income society. And as a result, there was much that this bankrupt Chinese state under the control of the Chinese nationalists thought that they could get from this new possession at the same time as wanting to teach these people that they were really Chinese and not Japanese. A snapshot of Taiwan today. What is the actual makeup between Hokkien and Hakka, etc.? Well, Taiwan uses the term Zuchun, which is translated as ethnic community, but it could be described as, in a sense, ancestry groups. In addition to the indigenous people who are as in Australia, classified as indigenous, right? This is a term that is not used on mainland China, that the people there are are classified as indigenous. There are informal cultural structures that cater to, in a sense, three Han population groups. The Hokkien dominant group, many of whom refer to themselves as Taiwanese. Uh, The Hakka, who are around 10% of the population, and another 10% of people of what we call Han Chinese background whose ancestors primarily arrived in Taiwan after 1945, and particularly after 1949, when the defeat of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government led to an exodus of the loyalists of that state and the establishment of that state on Taiwan, which after 1950 was maintained as the Republic of China on Taiwan under American protection. So that brought in a new government whose project and its achievements and its oppressiveness are acutely debated in Taiwan um, in the present, whose, I suppose, core constituency is people whose common language is Mandarin Chinese. Take us back then to when Chiang Kai-shek was escorted by the US Navy, as it turns out, across to the island of Taiwan, Mm -hmm. uh, bringing all that post the Civil War with it and a very authoritarian period, as you just alluded to. Can you describe what sort of political alchemy occurred when they arrived so, Kiet, what, what actually happened during that very intense period? Well, I'm not really a historian, but I think the contention is on the February 28th massacre where 
1947. So just prior sure, to that. yeah. And um, the Chiang Kai-shek regime was trying to consolidate its power on the island. And some of the uh, indigenous groups, as well as uh, local Taiwanese, Chinese people who have travelled to Taiwan before 1945, were uprising against the Chiang Kai-shek government. There was this massacre that took place and is called the White Terror. And now it's commemorated in Taiwan with some museums set up to commemorate this uh, massacre that up to, what, 30,000 indigenous and Chinese people were massacred during that time. So that was the kind of background. And the stories of the white terror was floated within the society, but not really pronounced officially right up till the 1970s and uh, and later on. That gave birth to the rise of the green movements, the indigenous political movement that we see in the green parties in Taiwan today. And was the white terror really a taboo subject buried within the psyche of, uh, of Taiwan? I think that prior to the formal ending of martial law in 1987, so essentially Taiwan came under the broad martial law that the Chiang Kai-shek regime had declared on the Chinese mainland to prevent communism, essentially. This was a subject that occasioned great fear. Um, Thanks to American support and the energies of both parts of the Taiwan population, the incoming group from the mainland, which is full of extremely talented and wealthy people, as well as poor people who were ordinary soldiers, and others, the Taiwan economy boomed, particularly 1960s and 1970s, and produced a second Japan, if you like, in terms of living standards, or a second Singapore. A miracle. miracle. An economic miracle, which was, of course, also distinctive for the fact that it did not involve substantial wealth inequalities between rich and poor. But this went hand in hand with a state ideology focused on Chiang Kai-shek, who died in 1975, um, being committed to the plan that Taiwan was the basis for reconquering the Chinese mainland. But, of course, this goal became increasingly unrealistic by the 1970s, despite the crisis of the Cultural Revolution. There was never any real possibility of a reconquest of China by the Kuomintang. So the preservation of the political organisation involved basing itself on a Taiwan population and the Taiwan constituencies who overwhelmingly were descendants of the pre-1945 population with only 10% around that being of mainland origin. So this meant that the Chinese Nationalist Party had to rethink its own strategies and to Taiwanize itself. So when Chiang Kai-shek's son died in 1986, 87, he was replaced by a Japanese-trained agricultural economist who had risen through the ranks of the Chinese Nationalist Party and proceeded, in a sense, to push this country towards a stance encouraging greater distance from the People's Republic of China. Now, that said, the other interesting development, of course, is that the Chinese mainland at this time, fascination for a kind of romance with Taiwan's nationalist Mandarin language culture proliferated. So you had, after the death of Mao Zedong, a kind of you know, love affair with Taiwan, but not with the pre-1945 Taiwan culture, the the Mandarin culture that had been built up by Chiang Kai-shek. So for many people disillusioned with Maoism, Taiwan was seen on the Chinese mainland as a kind of alternative version of what a modern Chinese state could be. And it remains deeply attractive 
right up until the present, with Taiwan stars being enormously popular on the Chinese mainland. A good moment just to quickly analyse the role of language then, Saoket. Um, Mandarin, as Lewis described it, imposed to a large extent. How important is that today as we look at this question of identity in Taiwan, the Mandarin language, those other languages... Obviously, the language spoken largely on the mainland of China, of course, Hakka is more a Cantonese uh, cultural background. So how important are languages in all this? I think languages in identity studies is one of the basic building block of how one would define him or herself. But we have to accept that all states impose some form of draconian rule against what kind of language that should be Spoken they look in, for a unifying lingua yes, franca. Yes, of course. It's, yeah. it's, it's part of the nation-building process. It's very much the same as English is being used as the language in Australia. But that aside, during the Chiang Kai-shek time, there was this very conscious effort to sideline the dialects and use Mandarin as the language. Uh, in fact, I was told by some old Taiwanese people that at the time when you're studying in Taiwan in the 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, if they speak Hokkien or they speak Hakka or any other dialects, they'll be punished by the school. You know, they have to use Mandarin. So the language itself, the dialects themselves became a symbol of resistance against the regime. It became the fertile ground where communities gather and said, we all speak this language. And that was something that was different from what the previous regime was trying to impose on us. So that became the kind of um, battle lines. Language dialects become the battle lines between the old regime against the new ones. In Taiwan, I think one of these issues about language identity is about the fact that now these days, most educated Taiwanese are probably more comfortable in Mandarin than they are in Taiwan Hokkien. It's often a language politics rather similar to Irish language politics in Ireland, where everyone speaks English, but there's an emotional attachment to Irish, even though the scope of the language is much bigger. So you'll find it would be very difficult for a number of young people to give a political speech in Taiwan Hokkien. It's quite hard. They could do it in Mandarin. And in fact, the language, this is an interesting thing. There is a parallel with Japanese that in both cases, the incoming authoritarian regime does get people to learn its language, even though they're resentful about it in other ways. And this adds to the emotion, as I say, that ties around these issues. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark with Asia Watchers, Dr. Lewis Mayo and Dr. Sokia Tok of Asia Institute. We're talking about evolving political identity in Taiwan and what that means for current and future relations with mainland China. Could we dwell just for a few moments on the word we've just been using fairly generically up to this point, identity. How are we actually describing identity here? Is it the objective identity that we can determine from research and taking polls, or is it that deep subjective sense of identity? It's an interesting one. I remember as a learner of Chinese in the 1980s that identity was a word that I didn't hear much and that it was one that became important as I think these kinds of issues, particularly to do with Taiwan's democratization, occurred. Um, one of the things about determining population groups in Taiwan is that there's no official registration for how many Hakka or how many you know, Hokkien or there is for indigenous people. And this is a problem because there are people who are culturally identified with being indigenous, but who are not given a formal classification within the indigenous recognized groups. And so in order to figure out about identity, you've got a lot of questions that are just resolved on surveys or opinion polls. 
And this is interesting because, of course, we have two questions here. One is how far people identify with one of these ethno-cultural linguistic groups within Taiwan and what that means in terms of their complex rivalries with each other and the much more charged question of whether one's identity is Taiwanese, Taiwan, or Chinese. And, of course, this is an interesting question because English has a rather broad spread with the word Chinese, whereas if I asked, so, Kit, you know, are you Chinese? He will say yes. But if I were to ask him, are you a Zhongguoran? He will say no, because he isn't. Even though I would translate the sentence, are you Zhongguoran, as are you Chinese? We're talking here about a sense of identification with a political entity that we would now call the People's Republic of China, which uses the name China, versus another set of identity questions and how people square that with their... I mean, Chinese Singaporeans have no problem with referring to themselves as Chinese and being Singaporean, whereas in Taiwan, to say that you are Chinese is a a vexed question. Sure. Just uh, to add a layer of complexity to what you were saying, even in Singapore, the idea of Chinese was created because the uh, ruling party, the People's Action Party, wants to eliminate the dialect differences in Singapore. And they try to build on this idea that this group is Chinese, we're living in harmony with other ethnic groups like the Malays or the Indians and so on. It was this very artificial political creation that pulls all these Chinese together and said, nah, we are all Chinese. But at the end, Lewis asked a very good question. And if he were to ask me who I am, I said, well, I'm a Chinese. But more and more consciously, I will call myself an ethnic Chinese rather than a uh, Chinese Chinese. And by that, the the first Chinese in that Chinese Chinese double is the national Yes, the national Chinese. So there is a political element to what is being known as Chinese today. Ethically, culturally, you can be Chinese, but at the same time, politically, you can choose not to be one. So it is not uncommon for me to walk down the streets in Melbourne and, you know, I, I meet up with people and talk to them and they'll ask me, are you Chinese? I say, yes, I'm Chinese, but I'm not too sure if I'm the Chinese that you were referring to. I mean, this is identity. This is identity. It's, it's interesting because I observe that at a social level, it's not difficult for people from Taiwan to make friends with people from mainland China. It's very easy. It's very easy. Very easy. But they are often incensed by any suggestion that they are Chinese, that this will be common. You know, we've had this experience, both of us, many times where a Taiwan person will say, no, no, not Chinese at all. I'm from Taiwan. I'm from, I'm Taiwanese. And depending on what that question means, right, because of course you've got two different components, broadly speaking, of this not China. You have a an anti-communist Chiang Kai-shek identity, which is opposed to the government in Beijing on political and often cultural grounds, which has to some extent morphed with the cause of Taiwan's separateness. And then you have this local Taiwanese identity, which probably dating from the Japanese period, issues all connection with the Chinese mainland. And an extreme, what I would call, Taiwanese independence nationalist narrative will say that from the very point that people arrived in Taiwan from China, they ceased to be Chinese. And that in addition, these were people fleeing China, that China is somewhere that they were trying to escape from. 
Another interesting um, element of this is quite racialist. There's an insistence that, in fact, the Taiwanese people are ethnically different because large numbers of pre-1945 Taiwanese Han, Taiwanese population, have Aboriginal genetics. And so there was an attempt to kind of construct this sense that, no, we're actually a different race, really. You know, there are all kinds of arguments across the political spectrum, and this is one of the reasons that makes political life in Taiwan so interesting. But significantly for people from Taiwan, there's a lack of interest in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. I find that, you know, Taiwanese people by and large don't care about Chairman Mao because he's nothing to do with them. And equally, people who are passionate about the Taiwan issue from the mainland Chinese side have no interest in the history of Taiwan prior to Chiang Kai-shek. You know, they can't understand this particularly Hokkien language and indigenous narrative because it's just it's not in their school books and it's just not interesting to them. If we're talking about local history and those forces that might shape actual or perceived identity, the increased democratization of Taiwan. Now, that's that's a big shift, isn't it, from a highly authoritarian regime and period to increased democracy. How do you see that playing into all this? Well, I don't know what Sokit thinks, but I would say that Taiwan is unique in the world in that it has an elected single female president who is not the relative of any previous politician. Now, for an unmarried woman to be elected to the top job is quite unusual in world terms. Another example of its recent unusualness is that in 2014, protesters occupied the Taiwan parliament and were not forcibly removed for something like three weeks. So this is quite an unusual experiment in terms of democratic action in world terms. Um, Interesting because I think that the view in mainland China is that much of the narrative of Taiwan independence is produced by unscrupulous politicians seeking power by stirring up something that really isn't there and that this is the sort of dysfunction that electoral politics tends to produce. Whereas from a Taiwan independence nationalist point of view, those people who believe that Taiwan and China have nothing to do with each other, Taiwan's electoral system is part of the ongoing struggle against Chinese oppressiveness. And because it came out of what Sokit refers to as the green parties, they're not green parties in the sense that they would be here, they're parties associated with the opposition to the ruling KMT, which came into existence in the 1970s and formally in the 1980s. Um, And those parties historically have associated themselves with a position of opposition, first to the Chiang Kai-shek and Jiang Jingguo authoritarian governments, and subsequently to, I guess, any suggestion of, of greater control of the Chinese mainland, which they associate with authoritarianism, over their world. So there's a mixture of cultural and political, and I would say, indeed, a certain snobbery. Um, Taiwanese people felt that they were more civilised in 1945 than people coming in from mainland China. And when Chiang Kai-shek's people arrived, Mandarin-speaking upper classes from the Red People's Republic of China, they regarded the local Japanese Taiwan people as rather vulgar, sort of bogans generally. And this sort of sense of mm, we're better than you on both sides has been an interesting part of the dynamic that's often not discussed. And another argument, of course, is that Taiwan being 
the society that is not under Beijing's control, that has the deepest understanding at the level of education of the Mandarin language world, is like other societies which are now economically dependent on the Chinese mainland, coping with the fact that China is so economically powerful. And of course, a lot of services financially that Taiwan used to provide to, in a sense, the United States have now shifted to Shanghai. Taiwan's GDP is still high, but economic growth is not significant. And you have many of the sort of anxieties that you find in a number of other societies, including Singapore, about what do we do about the fact that we used to be on top. And now these people that we used to be ahead of are sort of ahead of us. One argument is that this is part of what feeds the sense of uncertainty and insecurity about identity. So, Kit, and with that increased democracy, I'm thinking of young people living on Taiwan, that must really shift their perception of their own sense of power, their own sense of identity, which is the focus today. How do you see that? Much sharper lines drawn now between mainland China, obviously, increasing authoritarianism and decreasing authoritarianism in Taiwan. Yeah, what I observed is that the younger Taiwanese people, I think during the earlier days in the 1990s when there was this opening up of this democratization in Taiwan, they were very animated about who they are. But increasingly, as uh, I speak to more and more Taiwanese people over time, that more recently, I think there was this more acceptance of who they are without really challenging the status quo. It's a very interesting change, I see, as in like they have grown up to be a lot more comfortable with their identity as Taiwanese and yet accepting the fact that, well, they are not a separate state on themselves. And uh, living with the fact that there is this big China, mainland China out there, that's where the opportunities are. We have to probably give up a little bit on our political identity and try not to be too conflictual, living on our own as Taiwanese people, but still trade and interact with the Chinese people. And of course, there's a lot of investment from Taiwan oh, going yeah. back into China. There was so this, all those connections. Yeah, I remember back in the mid-2000s when we joked that 10% of Taiwan's population resides in Shanghai alone. That is a sizable group of Taiwanese people in Shanghai. And that's where Taiwan's economic future is, unfortunately. But we're now in the era of Xi Jinping, probably one of the strongest Chinese leaders, ostensibly permanent for the moment. And he's made pretty clear in his rhetoric what he feels about Taiwan. So how does that shape identity? My reading, of course, is that Xi Jinping is not so much the issue as just the general question of the sense for those who feel different between themselves and the Chinese mainland. Certainly, the contrast between Tsai Ing-wen, the current Taiwan president, and Xi Jinping is dramatic <laughs> in terms of personal style. You know, as I say, this unmarried lady that loves cats and this rather strongmanish person that rules in China, they look very different from each other. It's a bit like, well, I don't want to be too crude about it, but perhaps a contrast between Vladimir Putin and Jacinda Ardern in terms of... <laughs> I knew you were going to choose Jacinda. I just knew it. <laughs> I think the fear when Xi Jinping came about and abolished the presidential term in People's Republic of China is that there is this urge by him to take up more project that is steam unattainable, that is to reunify with Taiwan. Now, compared to previous uh, administrations in China, whether it is 
Jiang Zemin or, or Hu Jintao, they never wanted to reunify with Taiwan. At least there was no real action taken to do that. But for Xi Jinping, once his uh, rhetoric becomes a bit too much, there might be a chance that he might overpromise what he can do about Taiwan, whether out of desperation at some stage of his political career or is it out of expediency that he might want to initiate something that is unconceivable by his predecessors. Do we have any data at all on how, I'm going to use that term, the average Chinese citizen would perceive the identity of the average uh, Taiwan citizen. I guess it may be different on that eastern coast, the economic zone there, compared with, say, out west in somewhere like Chongqing. But do we have any data on that, Lewis, how the Chinese perceive the identity Uh, of people living in um, Taiwan? It's very straightforward for them. These people are Chinese. And um, first of all, there's very little information in the mainstream Chinese media that actually documents why there is this sense of Taiwan identity, even to negate it, and that the news media is persistent in showing Taiwan as disorderly and corrupt. This is a regular thing. So, And I find, even with students here, that people who are, I would call patriotic mainland Chinese, will tell me, no, 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 the people in Taiwan are sick of the government. They're disillusioned. They're basically moving towards us, because, of course, this is what the nationalistic Chinese mainland media tells them is the case. And as I say, because they are deeply in love with the exported Mandarin language Chinese cultural products from Taiwan, and they know that it's easy to get on with them, that the fact that there is a layer underneath that is difficult for them to comprehend. And I mean, in cases where there is not a hostility between culturally similar states, I think it's probably difficult for many ordinary Americans to understand why the Canadians don't want to become part of them. And because the idea of China's unification is so powerful as a binding force in Chinese life, I would say more than any other thing, people are committed to the idea of the map. Um, It's complex, of course, because the claim is that it's all of the territory of the Qing dynasty should be part of China, but of course Mongolia, which was part Mongolia of Qing dynasty, and, and, and indeed um, southeastern Siberia, which was part of Qing territory and ceded to the Russians, these are not on the map. But as we know from cases in Australia and universities recently, the sense that this is an emotional insult to Chinese pride to suggest that Taiwan is anything other than an inalienable part of China is a very, very strong feature of contemporary Chinese nationalism. Final question to you both, and a very obvious one, I suppose. What is the trend line? Allowing for all the complexities and the tensions that you both alluded to, just cleaning it all up a bit, I suppose. What is the trend line, Sokiet, for the identity of Taiwan? I think the identity of Taiwan will persist. From a political scientist's point of view, I hate to predict. I don't have a crystal ball to tell people what is going to happen. But as we see right now, you know, the tensions between Taiwan and China is going to be the microcosm of how this identity are going to play out because the tensions is just going to continue to build. And unless the Taiwan problem, called Taiwan problem, is solved, and there is a conscious effort to reshape this Chinese identity again. You see each side trying to promote an identity. And it's not just the politics promoting those identity, but identity will organically evolve over time. As far as I see, China and Taiwan are going to drift further and further apart. Mm. Well, it's an interesting question. I return to the Canada um, parallel because on the one hand, yes, indeed, 
the intensity with which people experience Taiwan identity at the moment, it's got a lot of momentum because it's so intriguing for the people who are inside it. And indeed, as a foreign observer, I found it a you know, fascinating society to look at. But the Canadians were dissenters from the American Revolution and the sense that the Americans might want to try and take them over after the American Civil War was one of the reasons that propelled Canadian Confederation in 1867. But these days, the sense that these two structures um, kind of can coexist and are stable entities and even not hostile to each other. This is an example where intense hostilities actually over long periods can tone down. So normally I would say what Sokit says is absolutely right. We need to think about, you know, so many societies, so many cases around the world where there is de facto independence or real independence. And an example would be in Indonesia, you had an independence movement in Aceh, which is now autonomous autonomous region. region. And the same time a struggle from East Timor to become separate and East Timor is now a separate state. You know, those show that there are different trajectories for these separatisms depending on local circumstances. So I can't say when I'm an old man whether the circumstances will look like they do now. But my guess is that you're right. The point of separation seems stronger than the point of convergence. It is a fascinating story. You're right, Lewis. It has everything, doesn't it? Politics and language and culture and increasing tensions. Thank you to both of you for being with us today on Ear to Asia. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Peter. Our guest this time on Ear to Asia, political scientist Dr. So Kia Tok and Asia-Pacific historian Dr. Lewis Mayo, both from Asia Institute. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 2nd of October 2018. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.